Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22, down to 36, I will read. So hear now the word of the Lord. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man. Delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted for it. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades." nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh suffered decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. May the Lord bless his word. Well, As you know, we have before us the very first sermon preached to the newly birthed church. The church is a term that is known in various ways in the Bible, in the New Testament, all of them rich in their imagery. It's known as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is the building, and the people are the living stones which make up the building. It is the flock of God, and so on. One thing it's never called, however, is Israel. It's not called the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, or anything else, the elect Israel. It is always called something other than Israel, because Israel and the church are not one and the same. It is used frequently in theology, but it is not used in the scripture. Rather, what the church is, is it is a unique entity that came into being here 
in Acts chapter 2, where God begins to do a new work in this age I referred to last week as the church age. It is where God works among both Jews and Gentiles, creating from both groups one new group called the church. Now, Paul calls it a different thing in Ephesians 2, where he says that he is taking from both groups and creating one new man. And the imagery is that because we're in Christ, we belong to the new man, the true man, the true Adam, Jesus Christ. But the passage there in Ephesians 2, where it says the new man, that word new is a very specific word that refers to something that is unique and entirely different. It's not an updated version. So when people try to say that the church is Israel, what they're really describing is somehow that God is updating Israel to now include the Gentiles along with the Jews. But that's not the term he uses. He is doing something utterly different among the people of this earth, and it is something new and unique, and it's called the church. And what stands out in the most when you think about the church is this close relationship that the people of the church have with their Savior. In fact, it is impossible for you to separate the church from Christ. Now, you must make a distinction between the two, but you can never make a separation. And the reason is that they are inseparable. Jesus is the head and the church is the body. Jesus is the cornerstone and the church is the building. Jesus is the shepherd and the church is the flock. Anyone who seeks to say, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church, is not a believer. Anyone who seeks to separate themselves from the church and yet somehow claim to love Jesus doesn't understand loving Jesus because if you love Jesus, you will love his body. However, the great event that ushered in this church age was the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we witnessed here in Acts chapter 2. And because of that, Peter now gets up because everyone there were speaking in these foreign languages. It was creating quite a stir and it was creating a problem because some people were amazed, some were confused, and some began to sneer and say, oh, they're just drunk. Well, that was not the key point, though. The key point was not the outpouring of the Spirit. What is the important part is that then Peter gets up and preaches, and he gives explanation to what they were witnessing. And what he said is that what they saw because of the outpouring of the Spirit is that they were now in the last days, that what they were witnessing was coming true, that the person Joel, the prophet, had described that it's a time that is great and glorious, and that now that they are in the last days, that they are living, if you will, on borrowed time. It's important that you understand that he is making it clear to them that their time is limited, and our time, therefore, is limited as well. We live in the last days, hurtling toward that day that's called the day of the Lord, and part of that is glorious, and part of that is sheer frightening. And therefore, he says that the only thing in verse 21 for them to do is to call upon the Lord, and he would save them. They are to repent, turn from their way, call upon the Lord, and he would save them. Now, I ended my sermon last week noting that the very first sermon was expositional, that all he did was open up the scripture and explain it. This is the essence of what any pastor is to do, he is to preach, 
In fact, if he doesn't know what he ought to do in a situation, the best thing he can do is preach. Open the word and speak. Preach the word. When? When it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, or as Paul would say, when it's in season or out of season. Why? Because it's, the God, it's God's word. I've never understood a person who does not believe the word of God is the word of God, but will then invest a life studying it. Why? Why? Why would you bother to do something that is investing your entire essence of your short life with something that you don't even believe? But if you believe it is the word of God, then you should invest yourself to always seeking to declare it and conforming your life to it because it's God's word to you. And so Peter does not bother telling the people what he thinks is happening. He's not interested in giving them a TED talk on the supernatural or unusual phenomena. He is not interested in giving a brief excursus on various views of deities and philosophies of religions. Instead, he says, this was that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And from there on, he does nothing more than quoting scripture after scripture and then explaining them. He does not need, in other words, to come up with content because he already has the content. It's the word of God. His job is just to declare it and to explain it. There's something very powerful, in fact, when you open the word of God and you explain it. But it is also, I will tell you, very freeing as a pastor. I've been doing this now close to, well, pastoring 24 years, but involved also as a chaplain, well over 30 And I can tell you, I've never had to wonder what I'm going to preach. I've never had to struggle over what ought I bring. What should I say to the people? All I need to do is open the word and explain it because it is a word of God. And I never have to worry about the next week because I just go to the next verse and I start from there. So can you, beloved. So can you with your family, with your, with your own mind and your own soul and with your friends. You're free. The power and the import of what you say will never be found in you. It will always be found in the word. And so what we now have is a chance to simply listen to the second part of his sermon where Peter confronts the people now with the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, he confronted them with the fact that they now were in the last days in our last message. Now he turns it specifically to Jesus, and he puts Jesus front and center, and he is going to now confront them with the person of Jesus Christ, and it is that that simple. Don't miss a point here because your soul hangs on this, okay? Understand what he is saying because in verse 21, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, who is the Lord? Well, the word there is Yahweh. There's only one true God. His name is Yahweh. This is the one, uh, the name that was given to Moses when he saw the burning bush and he was told by uh, the Lord to go and to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, well, who am I to say sent me? And he says, you tell them the I am sent you. And that is the name Yahweh. And from that point forward, he declared Yahweh. That is his name. Everything else is a title, but his name is Yahweh. Call upon Yahweh and you will be saved. Well, the Jew hearing that by Peter right now would say, fine, we know who Yahweh is. I'm good with that. That's fine. We're people of Yahweh. We're Israel. We're his covenant people. So we're good to go. 
fine, we, we, we recognize we need to repent. We, we've been sinning. But all we got to do is repent, call upon Yahweh, and he will deliver us. But it's not that simple. Now listen to me, and don't miss what's going on here. The problem is that they also had rejected Jesus. And what it is, is that they did not receive Jesus for who he was and is. And therefore, what Peter is going to do is push Jesus front and center in front of them and say, everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Now, let me talk to you about Jesus, because Jesus, beloved, is Yahweh. And so they're thinking in their mind, oh, we've got this. We know who Yahweh is. The problem is they don't know who Yahweh is, and they just showed it by how they treated Jesus and viewed Jesus. My goal, therefore, today is to confront you as well with the person of Jesus. I want you to see what the Bible says about him. I want you to come to conclusions about him. The one thing I don't want from you is for you to think that you can ignore him. There's a man, some of you will recognize this name if you're older. His name was Watchman Nee. He said this about Jesus. He said this back in the 30s. He says, first, if he claims, he being Jesus, claims to be God and yet in fact is not, then he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, then he must be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. And third, if he is neither a liar or a lunatic then he must be God. And his point is, you have to choose one of those possibilities. If you do not believe that he's God, then you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of the two, you have to take him for a liar. There is no need for us to prove Jesus himself is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. If he is neither, then we, he must be the son of God. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity in the 60s, made this much more popular when he talked about the fact that we need to see Jesus as one of three possibilities, liar, lunatic, or Lord. My question is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe? And why do you believe it? That's all I really want to know. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? One of the things that I am privileged to do as a pastor is hear people share what they believe. I get the privilege of hearing people's testimonies. And let me tell you, it's always fascinating as they talk about their faith and sin and salvation and God. It is always interesting to me how often people are vague. And I say this not as a rebuke, but I just simply say this as an observation, how vague they become with Jesus Christ where they inadvertently fall in error one way or the other. Somehow they, they really emphasize that he is a man or that he is God, that he died, but he didn't die, or he did die, but not quite die, that he rose or he didn't rise, or he only kind of rose or spiritually arose, and so on and so on. What is very fascinating is that when we come to the person and work of Jesus Christ, how frequently people are unclear. In fact, here's the situation Matt and I had in an interview with a woman who was looking at us to do some work with the police department. And she let us know that she too was a Christian and she was very excited for us to potentially be part of the police department helping the officers. 
And so she said, I too am a, a Christian. And I said, oh, great. And I said, tell me what you mean by that. And she said, well, it's just we love Jesus. And isn't it great that we both love Jesus? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. I have literally no idea what that means. Those are good words, but what does that mean? And as it, what she went on, it became evident that she didn't love the Jesus of the Scripture. This is common. And members in churches throughout our community and our nation claim to love Jesus, and yet they do not know the Jesus of the Scripture. So what we're going to do here in verses 22 to 36 is we're going to see what Peter says to these Jews about Jesus Christ. And I want you to compare what you think about him with what the apostle says about him. The first thing that he confronts them with is his humanity. Verse 22, the first half. And by the way, at some point you're going to start to think we'll never get out of here because we're only on verse 23 and I'll be two-thirds of the way through my sermon. Don't despair. We will get through this in a timely manner. In verse 22, the first half, he says, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a what? A man. Peter is not interested in trying to vaguely talk about Jesus. He says he is a man, and that's that. He is a man. He is from Nazareth, and his name is Jesus, but he is a man. Now, why is he doing that? Well, you have to understand that there is an incredible amount of influence in that day, and it continues to this day with a man named Plato. And Plato argued, he was a great philosopher, and he argued very persuasively to the point that it was pervasive in the cultures of that day and today, especially in the church, that somehow matter was of something that was bad, that material things were bad or of less good than spiritual things. They were not superior. And so the idea of God becoming flesh is impossible. God would never become flesh. He would never take on flesh or material or matter because that would be beneath him. That would be inferior. It's the same thing that we do when we try to say that Jesus somehow would not lower himself to take an earthly throne in the last days. The scripture says he will. I mean, it says it over and over again. We've looked at that. But in in theologians' eyes, they say all the time, no, that can't happen. He would not lower himself. He's already seated next to the Father in heaven. Why would he take a step down and take a throne on the earth? That is pure Platonic thinking. It is not biblical thinking. It's not what the Scripture says, but we think it because we have that influence of Plato. Well, Peter knows the same thing. He knows what these people are thinking, that God cannot take on flesh That would be lower, less, bad. But John 1.1 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, so before anything else was made, the Word was. So the Word already existed before anything else existed. It was pre-existent, whatever this Word is. And then the Word was with God, not God, He was with God, And it literally means face-to-face, 
describing an equality of relationship. So an equality of relationship, God is with, or the word is with God. And so we have a distinction. Here's God and here's the word. But then the third line says this, and don't let a Jehovah's Witness fool you when he says it means a God, because it doesn't. Greek does, the Greek language literally doesn't have the idea of a, of, of, of a God, or the word a, literally a. It is, and the word was by their equality or nature God. It was pre, the word was preexistent. It was relationally equal to God. And in fact, by its quality, the word was God. So we have distinction and yet deity. And then in verse 14, it goes on and says, and the word became what? Flesh. And we, and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Right away in John, he confronts the people with this one who is known as the word who is God himself, who took on flesh and dwelt among them. And then John carefully for 21 chapters shows that that was Jesus. Go with me. Keep your finger here. You'll keep coming back, obviously, to it. But go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and through 7. In this passage, Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So here we have again that here's Jesus that he had existed in the form of God, he was equal with God, but he emptied himself and he took on flesh where he dwelt among us. The Bible knows nothing of something that is physical somehow having a lesser value. It is of a lower, but that's not the same as lesser. And we don't have that easy in our brain. To to lower himself and to empty himself and to take on the form of a bondservant is not lesser or bad. It was good because all that God has made is good. Everything God makes is holy and right. When Jesus took on flesh and became a man, it was limiting, but it was not bad. And so we read about him growing tired, right? We see him get hungry and thirsty. We see him limited with regard to time and space. He suffered. He exhibited human emotions. He showed intellect as a man, and he showed the volition of a man. But of course, the key thing that showed him to be a man was he died. He was a man. He was human, but also one without sin, which makes him exceedingly unique. We saw him tempted by Satan in the early parts of the Gospels, but he rejects every effort Satan had. The book of Hebrews writes in chapter 2 that because he was tempted, that he is able to come to your aid in your time of temptation. More importantly, in verse uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews, it says this, We do not have a high priest, being Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
So what is it that we ought to do? In light of the fact that we have a high priest in heaven, that his name is Jesus, he has been tempted in every possible way without sin, and he sympathizes with you. Have you ever thought about that? That when you're confronted with your sin and your propensity to sin and you're being tempted with sin, he's not looking from heaven at you, shaking his head like mom and dad might, saying, you better not touch that. He shows you sympathy. Isn't that a kind thing? He shows you sympathy. He knows what's going on. He understands you. He understands you better than you understand yourself because you're going to give in to that temptation with the greatest of ease, even though you're going to claim in your prayer request, I'm really struggling. But we're not struggling with anything. We're good friends with our sin too often. But he sympathizes with us. So what do we do with that? Well, he says this, therefore, he commands you Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You're in the midst of temptation. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Go to God. Go to God, and he'll give you the grace in your time of need. So he's a man, fully human, without the stain and defilement of sin, which is so important because as Ezekiel the prophet writes in chapter 18, verse 20, the soul that sins must what? Do you know? It must die. The soul that sins must die. Second, he confronts him not only with the fact that he is the man, he is human, but that he was approved by God in verse 22, the second half. Jesus of Nazarene, a man, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So he's not just any man, but he's God's man. That word attested speaks of of proving. Who did the proving? Who placed this man, Jesus, before the world to prove or to show the world who he really was? Well, that person was God. So he didn't just show up on the scene, figure, hey, I'm going to see what I can do, and I'm going to see how far I can play this game out, and I'm going to claim to be the Messiah, and we're just going to see what we can get out of this. No, he was there placed by God himself. Now, how does he do that? How did God prove that Jesus was sent by him? Well, in a very tight summation of Jesus' life, Peter wonderfully draws the attention of the people to the Messiah. God the Father worked miracles through him, in other words. That's his point. He was proven or attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. God the Father working miracles through him, wonders and signs being worked through him, and all of these people knew of this. Everyone there had heard or seen and potentially even benefited from these actions. Now, keep your finger there and go back to John. John chapter 5. Now, when I was teaching through the book of uh, John, some of you have been here since that time. You may remember I gave you a bookmark. Um, and the bookmark that I created was every single one of the chapters was broken down, and I have one simple 
uh, description of that chapter, and I asked you to memorize it. That's something that we did with our children every breakfast, is that we would take our kids through it, and we would remind them, and we would practice, and we made it a game until they could they knew what every single chapter of John was. So to this day, when I hear the word John, or the phrase John 11, my mind literally says Lazarus. 11 Lazarus, 11 Lazarus. That's how I remember it. And chapter 9 is the healing of the blind men. Well, chapter 5 is the father-son talk. This is where Jesus deals with the, that the intimate, close relationship that the father and the son have with one another. But before we get there, look at verse 6. We have a, a man who has been lying lame for a, a long time. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew they had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So what's going on here is this pool, the pool, it was a a pool where tradition said that once a day, an angel would stir the waters, and whoever got in there first, would be healed. That was the tradition. And so all the people who were lame and sick and blind and everything like that would be in there. So it's a massive crowd in here. And they're all the most desperate of people. And here's this one who is in the most desperate situation. For years upon years, he's been this way. And in our society, we don't appreciate how bad it is to be crippled. And now Jesus is there, and all these people are watching, and he's asking them, what's going on? And he's like, well, this is what's happening. So Jesus doesn't do some weird thing. He just looks at him and says, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. So casual. And immediately the man became well, took up his pallet, and began to walk. Unfortunately, it was on the Sabbath day. Can't be having that now, can we? So all of the religious leaders freak out because they're like, you just told this man to stand up and walk. And now he's carrying his pallet. That's work. (laughs) 38 years, the dude, that's a theological word. The dude is crippled and unable to move. And all they can think about is uh, uh, he's standing with his pallet. That's work. You did that. You're guilty. Now skip down to verse 17. Verse 16 says the Jews begin to persecute Jesus because he was doing this on the Sabbath. That's work. 17, he answered them, my father, and this is where you see the father-son relationship. My father is working until now and I myself am working. He's like, um, uh, sorry, I always work. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his father or his own father, making him what? Equal with God. They knew what was going on. You don't just do that. No Jew would ever call God his father because that would make him equal. Now go over to John chapter 10. Verses 24 to 26. <clears throat> it 
The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are, now what's the phrase here? If you are the Christ, not Christ, the Christ. A lot of times I say this frequently because people mess it up. Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. It is a declaration of what he is, that he is the one promised of the Old Testament to come and to make all things right. They are saying, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And Jesus looks at them and says this, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. Now notice verse 26, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. Because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and the Jews want to stone him for this. Again, he makes it blunt. You are wanting to know if I'm in the Christ. I have told you, and you don't believe. You have seen my miracles, and you don't believe. And the reason you don't believe is you're not mine. I and my Father are one, and they have to kill him because they hear that. John chapter 12, 34 to 40. The multitude... Therefore answered him, we have heard out of the law that, now what's the phrase again? The Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, meaning he must die? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Why? So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled that he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause, they could not believe. See, it's not that they just would not, but they could not believe. For Isaiah had said, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. He had clearly done these things. They all saw it. They they couldn't deny it, but they did not believe it. Now you add to that overt statements Turn to John 8 while I'm talking. You have overt statements made by Jesus and the scripture, and it becomes clearer and clearer who they had all seen and watched and ultimately killed. At the very beginning of the Gospels, at the beginning of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 123, it is commanded that one of the titles that he is to be called, Jesus, is he is to be named Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What does that mean? But God with us. But then you can go to John chapter 8, verse 56, and listen to how he blows away the religious leaders. Now, 
understand that the Jew was very proud that Abraham was their father, that he was, they were descendants from Abraham and he was the recipient of great blessing by God. And they loved to talk about Abraham. Well, in verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Beloved, that I am is the same as what you have in Exodus. Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And he says, you tell them the I am sent you. He says, before Abraham ever was, I am. Not I was, I am. I am the self-existent eternal one. You doubt me? Verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. They, they, they're just blown away. How dare you say that? In John 17, what is well known as the true Lord's Prayer, he says this in verse 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had, where? With thee before the foundation or before the world was. He is saying, I want to share again in the fullness of the glory that was mine. And it's the same glory that is yours. Beloved, the Bible is explicit. God shares his glory with no one. And yet Christ shared that glory. Even the famous disciple Thomas, who is known as Doubting Thomas by so many, he could not believe that Jesus had truly risen from the dead. And he says, I must touch him. I must see him. And Jesus, in his great kindness, shows up and lets him touch him and see him. And as a result of it, Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And then finally in Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, so beginning with uh, Matthew and ending with Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, the Father is described as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, Jesus now is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Why? Because he is God. And one of the things you have to understand and what Peter is confronting these people with is that you have in one person two natures, fully divine and fully man. Not half divine, half man, not three-quarter, one-quarter, or anything else. He is 100% God and 100% man in one person. That is Jesus. Is not Jesus, the Son of God, somehow taking possession of a human and then leaving him at his death like some believe? But it is the Son of God taking on the fullness of what it means to be human, yet without sin. So these attestations given by Peter are actually heaping guilt on the people. Can you see that? They know all of this. They know he is a man. They know he is from Nazareth. And they've seen him do these things. And the guilt is now piling upon them. The works that Jesus did was God working through them. And so if they were rejecting those works, they were rejecting God. And then he shoves it one more time in their face. And in the Greek, it's actually put in the emphatic so that it's hyper-emphasized here. Just as you yourselves know, 
The witnesses shall be used against them on the day of judgment will be two. Listen to this and think about it because it will be you too. That if you are not in safe in Jesus Christ, there will be at least two witnesses brought. For them, it's this. They saw Jesus do these things. So the first witness that will stand against them will be the fact that they saw these things and they would not believe. But the second witness will be they themselves. And this is what is terrifying. One of the many terrifying things about the day of judgment is that all of us will stand. And if we do not have Christ's righteousness covering us, we have no hope. Because you know what's going to happen is you will stand and heaven and earth will flee from you. You will have no one there to be your advocate. You will have no hope but your own self. And God will take you and he will unfold your heart in ways you didn't even know could be unfolded. And everything that you are will be there. And your own words will condemn you. And he will say, just as you yourselves know. And you say, how did we know? And he'll just unfold another chapter. And your own words and your own thoughts that even now some of you might be saying in the hidden part, part, portion of your heart that I cannot see but God knows will be laid out right there for you. You say, well, I, how can he remember? He is God. And beloved, you will remember it too because it will be played out right there. So we have the fact that he's human, that he is attested by God. Verse 23, like I said, don't lose heart. We will finish. In verse 23, though it is clear that Jesus was sent by God, this, I forgive the very poor sentence in my notes. Though it is clear that Jesus was sent by God, he was then killed. That's the next thing he shoves in their face. Let me get to it. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Three groups here, God, the Jews, and the Romans. And in this passage, we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We learn that the death of Christ was no mistake, that it was actually God's plan that he would die, that it was done in ages past, that the Father had determined and the Son had agreed that the Son would take on flesh and be our sin bearer. We see that in places like John 6, where over and over and over again, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, don't miss that phrase, all that the Father has given me shall come to me and I shall raise them up on the last day, or all that the Father has given to me shall come to me and I shall lose none of them. They will all be saved. He says this starting in chapter 6, verse 35 or 37, I forget, but he does it all the way down through. There is this body of people that God the Father has given his son, and they will all come to him, they will all be raised up on the last day, and then not one of them will be lost. An amazing chapter. And then you say, well, who are these people that the Father has given? Well, Ephesians 1.4 says that just as God chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the earth was laid. 
Before time began, before there was anything else, there was just God, that God had chosen, he had elect those to be in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the earth was laid, before sin ever entered, because there was not even an Adam. Jesus came here not hoping to do something. He came here with a very clear mission, and that was to redeem the people the Father gives to him and to keep them safe to the end. And the key part of that was to die. Why? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says as bluntly as it can be said, without the shedding of blood, there can be no, no forgiveness of sin. So what are you going to do if, if, if you got to die and you can't even die good because your sin is your, your sin makes your death even a sinful one. What is our hope? So go with me one more time now to John 10. I want you to see what it says, starting in verse 15. The FOF class will recognize my words here. Should I call one of you up to explain it to everyone? Apparently not. John 10, verse 15. I'm going to start in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as a father knows me, and I know the father, and I lay down my life, and then that little word that we pass over for the sheep. Now, hopefully, those of you that were with me when I preached to John, you have that word for circled, and if you don't, do it now. Just humor your pastor, circle it, draw a line to the margin, and say, in the place of, or instead of, because that's what the word means. It is in the place of the sheep that the shepherd lays down his life. So let me read it differently. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay my life in the place of the sheep. Why? Because the sheep are sinners, and the soul that sins must die. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. But your death cannot be good enough, beloved. It never will be and never has been. But Jesus's is. It's without sin. So he's a good shepherd, and he lays his life down in our place. It's the substitutionary death of Christ. But for all of this, it did not take away the guilt of the listeners. Back into our passage. The Jews are still guilty, though it was a predetermined plan of God. They did the actual act. They, they conspired against him. They lied about him. They delivered him up to be crucified. The Romans did that job quite handily. The blood is on their hand, and the situation would end right there, right? Because he's dead. So, okay, fine, we made mistake. Sorry. I mean, okay, he did do these miracles and we saw him and, and yeah, he claimed to be the Christ and, and it sure looked like he maybe was the Christ and okay, fine, but he's dead. He's dead. So if nothing else happens, that's at least the end of the subject. We can't fix it. What are we going to do? Make that go away? No, he's dead. And so give it time and he'll be forgotten like everyone is forgotten. Life will move on. And the religious people will keep looking for that promised Messiah to come. The, the, the godless people will continue to live as if there's no God. And everyone in between those two groups will do their thing. 
And so suns are going to set and moons shall rise and season will flow. seasons will flow with babies being born. Money will be made and people will finally breathe their last and lie down and die. So what? Except there's a but in the next verse. And beloved, the deal, when the dealings of humans, there's always a but. And the but is this, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. The fourth point, verse 24, this God-man who was killed was raised up. It says, and or but, God raised him up again. The word can be but as well. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. God overcomes their godless actions and he raises Jesus up. And it's very important to note that Peter makes it plain that it's the Father who did this. Why? Well, because if you're the guy walking around the land saying that you are the Son of God, that He is your Father, that you do everything in His power, that you've been sent by the Father, and on and on and on, it's all about you and the Father, and that you're this person, and that they were to believe in you, and that if they put would put their faith in you, that you would save them and give them eternal life. And then if you must start making claims that you are equal with God, and then you die, if you stay dead, then everyone can say, liar. But he doesn't. He comes back on the third day. And so Peter makes the point that it's simply impossible for him to have been held in death. Why? Well, here he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. So notice the word for in verse 25, for this reason... David says of him, and then he quotes this passage, and he begins to quotes it, the key part of it, in verse 31, that he suffered, or he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. The point of the psalm is that there is one referred to it who shall not be abandoned by God. Now, David was not. He will be raised up on the last day. But that's not the one that David is focusing on. He's focusing actually on the eternal David, the true David, or the the final David, if you will, because God had made a covenant with David that there would always be one who would sit upon his throne and that there was coming one who was the greater David, if you want to call it that, who would sit upon the throne of David forever. It's the Davidic covenant. You're going to get to it as you read through your Bible very soon, actually very soon. So in 29 to 33, Peter begins to expound upon this psalm. He begins to explain what's going on. In verse 29, Peter essentially is saying this, that the ultimate referent, the one to, that, that David is, has ultimately in view was not David himself, but somebody beyond David. He says, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and to this day his tomb is with us. Now, why does he say that? Well, Herod, King Herod, apparently raided the tomb of David to get money. He needed money, so he decided, I'm just going to go in there and take it. And he tried to do it around 135 BC. This is a different Herod, obviously. 
However, the body was not disturbed, and apparently fire actually kept his men back, killing two of them. And so this led him to uh, building a marble memorial at the tomb. And to the, at that day, when Peter is preaching, that marble memorial was still there. That's why he's able and is still with us to this day. Everyone knows about King David's memorial and his tomb. And he's like, so he's still there. So we're not talking about David. So who was David talking about? And so in verse 30, he begins to make his point. And the point is this, as a prophet, he was actually looking beyond himself to the ultimate David who would be raised all based upon that oath sworn by God that made it a point of certainty. And it all goes back to 2 Samuel 7, where the covenant was made with David, that there would be the one who would sit for all eternity on his throne. And people quickly recognize this to be a messianic psalm prophesying and promising of the coming Messiah. So having been raised and ascended, He now becomes the one who sends the Spirit, and that is what's happening on this day. So he's now tying that in, too. He's like, so he's now gone up into heaven, and the Father's given the Spirit, and the the Son has now sent the Spirit, and you just watch that happen because everyone starts talking in foreign languages. So all of this is happening because of the resurrected Christ. But the big point in this is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, And he is exalted at the right hand of God. He didn't stay dead. Now in 34 and 35, Peter moves from Psalm 16 to Psalm 110. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The point is very simple he's making. David can't be speaking about himself. Rather, he's looking forward to a time when the Lord, Yahweh, says to another who is David's Lord, well, David's the king. Who's his Lord? If it's not Yahweh, well, it's the Messiah. In fact, it's a passage that Jesus himself referred to and confounded the Jews when he referenced the exact same one and say, so exactly who is that Lord that David was talking about? that Yahweh was talking about. And everyone's like, I'm not answering that because they realize I can't answer it. Anything I say is going to get me in trouble. But everyone knows the passage. Notice also there's this location. There's a location. David, it was not David who ascended into heaven. And that the Lord said, sit at my right hand. So where is this Lord who ascended? He is at the right hand of the Father. Peter's still reasoning for this. You need to understand, for this reason, listen, understand. David isn't the one who ascended into heaven. As he already pointed out, he's still in the grave and we even see the grave. So it's clear that he's not the ultimate point of Psalm 110, but the promised Savior was the one who died, the one who rose again, the one who ascended, and also the one who will return. So now the Lord that they killed didn't stay dead, but rose again, is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, 
Until when? Until he makes his enemies his footstool. A word of judgment and a word of warning. And that is what we see in those last days. Every enemy of Christ will be brought low until he returns and makes all bow before him and confess him as Lord. Now, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The Jews of that day knew what he meant when he said the Lord. It means you must declare him to be Yahweh. There's no way around it. If you're going to receive him, you must receive him as Lord. Now remember what he ended the first part of the sermon. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Who has God made Lord? Jesus. You're going to have to call on Jesus. Do you see how awkward this is for them? Oh, we got it. We're the people of Yahweh. No, 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 no. If you're the people of Yahweh, then you're the people of Jesus. You don't get to play with Jesus. They crucified him. The one God declares Lord in Christ. In other words, to kill the one who shares the throne of God becomes a sin directly against God the Father himself. What does that make them? It makes them enemies, beloved. It's not hard to figure that out, right? What did verse 35 say? That Jesus' enemies will be judged and they will become his footstool. They'll be humiliated before him. We learn that the soul that sins must die. That he is man, right? He says, this is the man, but yet he is also God. That he is our substitute who dies in our place for our sin. That he rose again on the third day as the scripture promised. My question is this, do you believe that? Anything less than that, you do not know the gospel. You do not have the gospel. And you are under his wrath. You can have every mystery known to mankind, but if you don't have this, you don't have Christ. He is man, fully man. He is fully God. He died in our place. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And beloved, he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe it? Is this your hope? This is what the Bible calls the good news. My hope is after Easter... I will then show you the great work of salvation that's described for us in the rest of this chapter. But until then, I ask you, what is your hope? Turn it to Christ alone. Let's pray. So, Father, as we now prepare to go home again and take care of the things that await us, let us not tarry, but to deal with our soul. Again, we're confronted with Christ Let us be ever confronted by him. Let us always see him for who he is. Let us wrestle with these things until it becomes rested. They become resting in our soul that Christ is our hope, our salvation, that the God-man died in our place, that he rose again, conquering death, and that in him we have life. Let us trust there and only there for your name's sake. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.